fellow armchair historians, Anne-Marie here. Welcome back to our second mini episode. This week, I have two little tidbits of armchair history to share with you. Mini golden nuggets, if you will. And both are connected by one theme, treasure hunting. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I absolutely love to mudlark, which is a form of treasure hunting. One of my other favorite hobbies is actually metal detecting, which I got into during lockdown through my great nephew and sometimes co-host Finley and my niece, his mother, Megan. This leads me to my first mini episode segment, History in the News This Week. This first story appeared in the New York Times this past week and was sent in to us by one of our listeners, Coletta Perry. Thanks, Coletta. 34-year-old Charlie Clark from Birmingham, England, was feeling down about losing his dog to cancer. So to take his mind off of it, he picked up his metal detector and went over to his friend's house in the country. It was a new hobby he picked up over the past six months. So as Charlie was detecting his neighbor's yard, he started to hear loud resonant beeps. As he passed his detector over a particular spot in the yard, you can imagine his surprise when he started digging... And just about a foot down in the dirt, he found a historically significant, never-before-seen artifact. Charlie immediately knew he had found something special. And I just get chills thinking about this. What Charlie had found was an intact gold pendant attached to its original chain from over 500 years ago. According to the New York Times article, the pendant itself was an ornate spectacle. The front was decorated with a pomegranate bush, an emblem of Catherine and an entwined double-headed Tudor rose, which was employed by the Tudor starting in 1486. On the other side, the letters H and K for Henry and Catherine were written in Lombardic script and connected by a ribbon. We're talking about Catherine of Aragon, the first Catherine, Henry's first wife, one of the few wives left with their head intact. So here's the thing. When Henry wanted to be relieved of his first marriage to the devoutly Catholic Catherine, he sent off a letter or a proclamation to Rome, requesting that the Pope annul his marriage. No way! And when Rome refused to annul that marriage, what did Henry VIII do? He broke from the church and became the supreme leader of the church in England. 
basically God's appointed interpreter, as if the monarch didn't have enough power already. I like to call it Catholic light. To me, this is one of the most fascinating religious reformations of the time in Europe. This story is definitely a rabbit hole in history that I highly recommend you go down if you haven't done so already. According to the article, quote, by law, those who find treasure in Britain are required to report their finds, allowing museums a chance to acquire them, paying a fee that is split between the finder and the landowner. After finding the pennant, in 2019, Mr. Clark first brought it to an expert in Birmingham, who he recalled was, quote, shaking when she held it, end quote. Her jaw was on the floor. It was then sent to the British Museum, where researchers were similarly agog. Now, researchers have confirmed the authenticity of the pendant, placing it at about 500 years old but they can only speculate on the purpose of this artifact, whose small chain was meant for somebody of small stature. They say it was hastily made more to be seen than to endure, although it has endured the test of time. Now, according to Rachel King, curator of Renaissance Europe for the British Museum, there were no portraits from the period showing men or women wearing jewels of this type. No one really knows how or why it ended up being buried in Charlie's friend's yard. It's one thing we'll probably never know. Now, Henry VIII was a partier. He loved to throw a good party, and he loved his jousting tournaments. Let's party! And one of the theories floating around out there about the pendant's origin is that Henry created it as a sort of party favor for one of his banquets or as a prize for one of his jousting tournaments. While nothing ever will replace Charlie's dog, something tells me that him finding this unprecedented artifact may have just taken the edge off of his grief. David Lester and Marcus Redeker, welcome to Armchair Historians. If you follow me on Twitter, then you probably saw my post this week about how excited I was to be interviewing these two guys about pirates. The two have just released a graphic novel under the banner of King Death. Part one of my two-part interview with them will be coming out this week. But in the meantime, I have a little treat for you. In this new segment that we're going to call... Let's get quizzical. In a nutshell, Under the Banner of King Death is about the egalitarian government of the pirate ship. It's really about much more than that. So tune into our next episode to get the lowdown. So basically, I quiz David and Marcus on key pirate terms. It's seafaring terms. It's also what is called cant language which is the language of uh, basically poor workers, the sort of underworld uh, of London and other poor cities. So it's not specifically pirate, uh, most of it, but they these are phrases that pirates would have known. So basically, I give one of them a term, and they have to tell me what it means. The first term we have is anchor your arses.
Sit down, mates. <laughs> the next term we have is bloody back. Bloody back is a red coat British soldier. Which makes sense. Yeah, it does, Italian doesn't it? color of blood to the red coat. Yeah. The next one is bogey. So, so if you wanted to say the equivalent of uh, uh, moon that guy, they'd say, show him your bogey. <laughs> okay. okay, so David, going upon the account... Yeah, I, I love that. It sounds very formal. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound scary at all, but it's uh, turning to piracy. No. <laughs> they signed an, an actual agreement to the principles of how they want to organize the ship and turn their piracy into a, a democracy. And so I just love that phrase, going upon the account. It sounds very, very dignified when you've actually just <laughs> taken over a ship. Okay, the next one, Marcus, Gentleman of Fortune. <laughs> this is what pirates uh, called themselves. We, we are gentlemen, not those... <laughs> not those other rich guys. They're not gentlemen. We're the gentlemen. We're just gentlemen of fortune. And we're out here on the high seas making our fortune right now. Okay. And of course, Marcus, uh, Jolly Roger. Yes, this is the pirate's black flag. It has several meanings, some of which are quite obscene. So I'm not sure we want to go into those. Roger was a word that in this 18th century cant had several meanings, one mm -hmm. of which was the devil. So Jolly Roger played on kind of satanic imagery. Roger also meant to copulate. So there was a, a We message. still use that term today. <laughs> right. But, uh, but this is basically the black flag, which sent a message that you better surrender uh, or you risk death. Mm -hmm. But it also sent a message about the tough working conditions the sailors were under. Mm. Well, David and Marcus, thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's uh, wonderful to talk to you. There you have it, our second mini episode. To find out more about Charlie's excellent find and Under the Banner of King Death, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.